Good afternoon, everyone. This is Marcus Grodi, your host for this Deep in History program. I'm joined, as usual, by Monsignor Jeffrey Stevenson. Hello, Monsignor. Hello, Marcus. It's good to be with you this morning. I make that greeting even though I'm looking right at you, but I want to make sure that our, our connections are are good. Uh, we're I'm in Ohio. Monsignor's up in uh, Minnesota, and um, we're, we're enjoying slowly working through this wonderful uh, book by St. Irenaeus, uh, we believe written around the year 175 AD, and it's a book called Against Heresies. And if you will, the title for this episode is The Gnostic Pandemic, which is fitting to the time we're going through. Right, Monsignor? <laughs> That's right. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Before we jump in uh, to, we're going to finish book one today, I wanted to ask Monsignor, if you would, again, for those especially that maybe didn't join us yet, to give a little overview of why St. Irenaeus wrote book one and what he was trying to accomplish in book one of this larger uh, composition. Yes, I think what seems um, very evident is that Irenaeus was uh, dealing with a, a real crisis in the church. Uh, we know it existed in Asia Minor. There are plenty of uh, texts that survive that tell us about that. But in the Western church, it was as well that, you know, you would have these teachers, these itinerant teachers that would come in and they would basically blow apart the unity of the Catholic church and lure people away. And uh, what, what Irenaeus seems to be doing here is uh, writing this text against heresies um, as essentially a, a guidebook for the bishops to help them to be more effective in countering these, these heresies um, in the church. And what, what book one does is he, Irenaeus uh, tries to help us make sense of it by showing how it goes right back to the very time of the apostles, the encounter between Simon Magus or Simon the magician and Peter and the other apostles. And, um, and then how that, you know, basically carries on. Um, I was last night, I was fascinated. I had just read a little bit of um, St. Jerome on illustrious men. It was kind of a who's who of the early church. And, and his first entry on, on Simon Peter talked about the reason why Peter left to go to Rome. And, and Jerome says it was primarily so that he could counter the work of Simon Magus or Simon the Magician, which was so um, destructive of the gospel. The other thing I'd say is um, in book one, after uh, we have the incredible... Uh, detail in terms of all the craziness that um, these Gnostics were teaching and how inconsistent they were among themselves. But Irenaeus is developing a, a theological method 
that is going to become very, very important. And when we finally get to book three, it'll, it'll just snap into place so clearly. But what he's doing is, um, he, what he's doing is he's developing um, a response to Gnosticism that is based on, first of all, the canon of scripture, that there is a definitive and authoritative canon of scripture, um, that Christ the Logos has superintended and unfolded. Um, and, and then this is superintended by the bishops of the church through apostolic succession. So that becomes his methodology, if you will. And today we'll get to see a little bit of uh, how he also draws on the baptismal creed in terms of providing a structure for arguing back against the Gnostics. I'm going to throw a wrench into this, Monsignor. You and I haven't had, okay. had a chance to talk about this, so I may be just giving my own view. But uh, from my background as an evangelical coming into the church, we had lots of conflicting ideas about how to interpret biblical prophecy, like the book of Revelation, and particularly how to understand the thousand years, the millennial, and, and when Christ was coming again, uh, when the last times were the last days. And the reason I bring that up is, I'm not going to go into that big argument right now, but what, what I've come to see, especially in the last 30 years in my Catholic studies, is that one of the most traditional ways of understanding this is through St. Augustine's City of God and the idea that we're living in the thousand years. Yes. We're yeah. living in the kingdom already, but not yet fulfilled. It's already not yet. Christ is presently king. And again, to push that a little bit, when St. Paul wrote, when St. John recorded the vision in Revelation 20, particularly, it talks about a time when the devil will be bound for a thousand years, and then at the end of that, will he'll be released for a while. Now, the reason I bring this up is the, the idea of and I, you're more of a patristic scholar, so you'd know which of the of the scholars in the early church dealt with this, but there's three stages, if you will, that before Christ, darkness reigned. And we see that talks about in Isaiah. Um, uh, the people were in darkness, all right? And then with the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ, which is what we celebrate today as we tape this, the devil is bound to a certain extent. It, the, the idea being that the Gentiles now are able to see the light, which explains why all of a sudden, as we're reading this, even by 175, the church is expanding everywhere. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean that the devil can't accomplish all the things that were warned. And, and my point being is that when the New Testament writers talk about the last days. If you have a, an understanding of biblical prophecy that sees the last days as yet to come, 
then all those things that St. Paul said, for example, to Timothy have not come yet. And, and we always look at those as a sign of when he's coming again. But the reality is, again, following St. Augustine, is that when, when it says in the last days, we're talking about now. So when he wrote to, first, to, to Timothy and he said, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of stress, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, inhuman, implacable, slanderers, profligates, fierce haters of good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of money, holding the form of religion, denying the power of it. Avoid such people. Avoid such people. He's not talking about something way in the future. He's talking about how... Yeah. The many antichrists that John talks about in his first letter are already actively trying to destroy the gospel. And that's what St. Irenaeus is trying to attack and protect his people from, right, Monsignor? That, that's a very fair way to put it, I think. Um, we, we would say that St. Irenaeus is one of the last generation of what we call the Kiliasts. Um, those that uh, emphasize the uh, a literal reading of the thousand year reign, mm -hmm. and it's interesting that um, that we don't find in Irenaeus the argument. I don't find it very clear anyway that the church is Jerusalem. Um, for Irenaeus, Jerusalem is still significant, yeah. the historical city of Jerusalem, and um, and so he. That's one of the, the challenges of reading him because he he represents that earlier early Christian. Um, well, I don't know what, what do we call it nowadays. Um, millenarianism, premillennialism, yeah, yeah, millenarianism. I guess, yeah. Yeah. And you know, in the in the next century, uh, when Saint uh, when not Saint but Eusebius of Caesarea comes around, he develops what will what we now look back and call postmillennial. Because Constantine, the first Christian emperor, is basically helping to inaugurate the reign of Christ on earth. Um, and that didn't work either. <laughs> and so St. Augustine represents, um, what do we call it? Kind of more of an amillennial uh, sort of view. Of this. An amillennial so, view. The thousand means a long time. And we're yeah. in that. We could be in that short period at the end that Leo the Thirteenth kind of said we've we're in it, you know that's which is why yeah. he wrote the Saint Michael prayer. But whatever, my reason for bringing this up now is that the things that Saint Irenaeus is addressing were warned about. They right. were going to come. Right, and he he would have seen. The activity of the Gnostics as basically the work of Satan unloosed on the earth. Exactly. So the strategy, very fine, Monsignor, for the summary. Let, what we'd like to do is Monsignor is going to cover the meat of our topic today. Uh, and what I like to do is, because we're going to cover a long section, we're going to finish book one today, is I go through, what I like to do is I go through and I just pick out a couple of 
I don't want to call them scriptures, but a couple of quotes that to me really jump out uh, that help represent some of the theology that we see at this time that maybe we don't realize how well it's developed or to get a key of what St. Irenaeus is assuming behind his arguments. So I've just got four sections, and we're not going to spend a lot of time talking in detail about these because I want to make sure we get to Monsignor's uh, uh, more detailed discussion of the Gnostics. But I just want to point out some sections, especially if you have either the book that we're using or the PDF version of it, you could underline and then come back to it. So just four areas, and I want to start, and I'll read those for those of you that don't have a copy. Um, Book 1, chapter 15, sections 3 and 4, and these are on page 75. And this really goes with something you said, Monsignor, just a moment ago. And in the midst of St. Aeronaeus' argument, he says this. He says, Yea, and these also work magic arcs and incantations, love charms also, and alluring spells, and familiar spirits, and prompters of dreams, and other mischiefs, saying that they have now power to rule over the princes and makers of this world, and not them only, but all the things also which are done therein. And they are themselves emissaries of Satan, as the Gentiles, to distract from the divine name of the church. That in one way and another, men hearing their proceedings and thinking us to be all such may turn away their ears from the preaching of the truth. Or again, seeing what they do may speak evil of us all. Although we communicated nothing with them, neither in doctrine, nor in manners, nor in daily conversation. So in other words, St. Irenaeus said he's not talking with these guys all the time. He's just hearing about what they're saying. But they maintain, but they maintain a luxurious life and an impious opinion. And to veil their flagitiousness, abuse the name whose judgment is just receiving from God the due reward of their deeds, and into so great madness do they rush unbridled that all things whatsoever are irreligious and impious they say they have in their power and practice, for by nothing but human opinion, they say, are any matters good and bad. Now again, I pointed out this section because he's saying that these, the, the, the devil is behind this, using these people, many of whom were Christians, but then drifted away to try and pull people away because of their fancy talk. And even, remember, as Paul said, holding the form of religion but denying the power of it. I mean, that's what they're doing. Yes, yeah. And, the, and, the, and that idea that Irenaeus talks about here, that um, because they, they're above everything, um, their attitude is, um, you know, they can do whatever they want with their physical bodies because it doesn't matter. Yep. Um, yep. They just they sit above it all. Yeah, the um, um, yeah, we've we're, we're so accustomed in our day to have the availability through the internet, through the printed page, through all the different media to have access to other opinions so that if we hear a strange opinion, we can go quickly to the truth. 
But these people didn't have that. That availability. They might have a very charismatic religious person come into their little village and sound very convincing, but be mm -hmm. twisting the Gospels, twisting it. And if anything, that's why St. Irenaeus knew he had to do this. So he had to pull all the crazy enough stuff together into book one so that people could say, I heard that. Yeah, I heard that. Yes, I was hearing that the other night. You know, so it awakens everybody to, wait a second, I thought that was true. It isn't true. He's bringing them in together. A second section that follows on this is on the next page, 76. Again, this is chapter 25, um, section 5, and it goes this way. Now, whether or no they practice among themselves such things as are godless and lawless and irreligious, I cannot make up my mind. But so it is written down in their books. And this exposition themselves give, saying that Jesus spake a mystery apart to his disciples and apostles and bade them deliver these things to the worthy and obedient, for that we are saved by faith and love, but other things, being indifferent, are according to the opinion of men reckoned here evil and their good, nothing being evil by nature. And some of them use a mark searing their disciples with a hot iron upon the lower part of the lobe of the right ear. Oh, I think I've heard somewhere that we're saved by faith alone. Did I ever hear that somewhere, Father Munson? I believe you might have. <laughs> <laughs> but there they are limiting the the significance of, of the faith down to faith and love only and nothing else matters is just a bunch of opinions. Right. right. And because it's all in the spiritual realm, purely in the spiritual realm, where they're heading and thinking, um, what they do with their bodies in this physical world is of no consequence. They can do whatever they want. Yeah, there's something I found interesting, both in the last quote and in this quote, is St. Irenaeus is kind of saying, he's admitting um, he's, he's almost saying, you know, I'm not sure these people really do this in their real lives, but this is what they say in their books. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, he said that here, and then the last time he said, well, you know, I, I, I've not had conversation with these guys, but this is kind of what they say. And again, there's that world they live in. Um, but it also points to the, um, you know, it's saying one thing, living a different way. Uh, and, you know, uh, Marcus, one other thing that jumps out in this quote that you gave us here um, is how Jesus had uh, basically two different messages, you know, one for the inner circle and then one for the, the masses, if you will, outside. And I find that I mean, that, of course, is a definition of what Gnosticism is. Um, but isn't it interesting how, we, when you think of things like Freemasonry, yeah. you you have these sort of levels of knowledge, um, and uh, people are, you know, gradually, if they hang in there, they are able to move up, up the notch in a way. 
Yeah. That's that's basically a Gnostic way of looking at this, you know. We've heard that from, especially converts from Mormonism and Jehovah Witnesses, the same thing. Yeah. Um, Which just points out that if you're ignorant of history, you can repeat the exact things we're reading about. These didn't go away in the second century. These are still here which is part of the reason I'm reading these particular things, is listen for the ring of them in our present day. The third quote, if you turn over to page 80, again, we could spend a lot of time. This is a fairly long one, but I just find it fascinating. This is in chapter 28, uh, section 1 and part of in 2. It's a long section, but listen to it, and it kind of a summary and Monsignor, as you listen to it, it really summarized some things you've said earlier. Irenaeus writes, Now from these who have been mentioned, many offshoots of many heresies have in course of time arisen, because many of them, yea, all, desire to be teachers and set themselves up to withdraw from the sect in which they were and to teach in a new way forming one doctrine out of one opinion and another out of another, still proclaiming themselves the inventors of whatever notion they have put together. To give an example, from Saturninus and Marcion, those who are called the continent, preached abstinence from marriage, setting at naught God's original formation and tacitly blaming him who made male and female for the generation of men. And they brought in abstinence from the things which are called among them animate, behaving themselves unthankfully to God who made all. And they deny the salvation of the first man. And this has even now been invented among them, one Tatian having in the first instance brought in that blasphemy, who having been a hearer of Justin, that's Justin Martyr, I assume, as long as he yeah, was uh-huh. with him, uttered nothing of the kind. But after his martyrdom falling away from the church, elated and puffed up with the conceit of being a teacher, did as one excelling all others establish for himself a school with a peculiar stamp, like Valentinus's people, making out a mythology of certain invisible aeons, or like Marcion and Saturnus, denouncing marriage as corruption and fornication, but his denial of Adam's salvation he invented of himself. And then just a little more, because he goes on. But others, again, taking their hint from Basilides and Carpocratus, have brought up in undiscriminate concubinage and polygamy, and carelessness about eating things offered to idols, saying that God doth not greatly regard these things. To be short, there is no counting the number of those who in one way or another another have fallen away from the truth. Yeah, that's a great um, text, too, to help to see that, like those that follow Marcion were real strict about... um, they, they wanted to have a life that's lived without any physical contacts at all. And, and then, especially that, that Gnosticism that we meet up with in Alexandria, Valentinus and Basilides, um, 
yeah. uh, is is you know anything goes. And yeah, those Alexandrian fathers wrote about that how how dreadful that was. The part that jumped out in this is again bringing this to the 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th, 20th century, now in the 21st century, is we have men and women, but mostly men, who may have been priests, uh, maybe even bishops, who began in the truth, but for one reason or another, decided they wanted to be their own teachers and to make a religion out of their own opinion as Irenaeus forming one doctrine out of one opinion and another out of another. And that's the history of the last 600 years. And someone will break away from another, and then someone will break away from that one, and someone will break away from that one. And each one uh, de demanding they have a better interpretation of Scripture or a better, uh, more authentic tradition or a, a better grasp on philosophy or or on what's going, I mean, it, it, it's endless. Uh, yeah, we talked about the split of a split of a split. Kind yeah. of one more, thing. one more quote yeah. that I want to just point out. <clears throat> There's so much here, I think great stuff, is at the very last page of chapter, book one, excuse me, page 92. Uh, it would be in chapter 31, and it's the very last page. And he says, so we too, now that we have brought their secrets into the light and the mysteries which they keep silent among themselves, shall not need many words to overthrow their doctrine. For thou art able and all that are with thee to try your strength against the things which have been now set forth and to overthrow their wicked and uncouth doctrines and to prove the statements which belong to the truth. And so, if you will, that's the quote that brings book one, if you will, to a close, what he's tried to accomplish. What was his goal? So that the people, the common people, could, could weave their way through these false teachings that are so enticing, so that they not be drawn from the truth. And I mean, that's what he was trying to do. Yeah. And and as we you know go into book two, um, we see how he uses the baptismal creed, which yeah. is the armor that every every Christian um, person will be given, um, so that they can respond um, to these false teachings as they come up. Um, they can begin to think them through and see are these consistent with my baptismal faith. Yeah. Um, Again, remember at this time, yeah. this is before there has been an ecumenical council, right? I mean, there have been right. local... Local things, but yeah. And there's no catechism. There's um, the, the actual canon of Scripture has not been officially decided yet. This is 175. The canon doesn't really come together in an official way until the end of the 4th century, till about 380. We know it for sure, although Irenaeus is quoting every book of the New Testament uh, here. So what do the people have? What does the common husband or mother have to make sure 
that their children are following the faith with all these other voices. They have the baptismal creed. That, that's the truth that they have. All right, Monsignor, I'm going to pass the baton to you because now your goal is to go through the details of every Gnostic in the, in the first 200 years. <laughs> well, we would. <laughs> that would be a tall order. <laughs> but, uh, oh. but before we jump into that, Marcus, can I just say one other thing just to follow on what you said? Please. Um, I've always been so um, moved with um, the opportunity to join in St. Ambrose's um, catechesis class because St. Augustine in the Confessions gives us some uh, picture of it. And then, of course, we have... Um, uh, we have the Ambrose's notes as well. It was a very vigorous class. Um, and the, one of the most important things that happens is just before the, um, the neophytes are about to be baptized on the vigil of Easter, um, really their last important task is to memorize the Apostles' Creed. Um, and that I think is just, it always has left, you know, because uh, yeah. we used to have that, that used to be a, a standard that applied everywhere, you know, before one was confirmed, um, yeah. one would, you know, I heard a story the other day about a, um, one of the Catholic bishops up here that um, got himself so unpopular because um, when he'd come for confirmations, he'd have a quiz period beforehand and he'd ask He'd ask the young people to recite the Apostles' Creed. Um, and not the, the priests hadn't properly trained them in that. And um, but yeah. that's that was the standard that was used. Yeah, well, I'll tell you, you've, you've touched on, again, my personal opinion for what it's worth that, you know, certainly the, the Nicene uh, Constantinople Creed is, is the definitive creed but often most of the phrases in that creed, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, be not not made one being with the Father for whom all things are made. You know, that, those were addressing battles in the third, second, third, and yeah. fourth century. And they're battles that we don't necessarily know anything about today. And when I look back on the warnings of Paul to Timothy, telling him, don't get caught up in a battle of words. And St. Irenaeus says the exact same thing in this book. Mm -hmm. He basically holds to the simplicity of what Scripture tells us. That that's why I also prefer the Apostles' Creed. Because it is the, simplest, the simplest expression of, of the Christian faith that held the church together for to this day. The Nicene Creed is the Apostles' Creed, but but augmented to address certain heresies. Right. Right. And the, the Apostles' Creed that we have, um, the baptismal creed that we have, the earliest um, you know, full expression or in the text that we have is in the apostolic tradition of St. Hippolytus of Rome. And that was written in the lifetime of St. Irenaeus. Right. So um, yeah, I, we just, we're right there with the Apostles' Creed. We're right there with him in his pastoral duties. 
And we're at a time, which I think we've lost it, but we're at a time in the history of the church when we look at this, that if somebody wonders, and, August, and, and Irenaeus does this all the way through, if somebody wonders, well, is something that Marcion is saying, which you're going to get to in a moment, is, is it true? How do I know if it's true or not? It's so enticing. It kind of makes sense of, of my gut. How do I know if it's true? Well, it wasn't just the Apostles' Creed, which was a part of it. You know, what, what have you known? It was, well, does what Marcion teach connect with the apostolic deposit of faith that was handed from Christ to his apostles? That's, that's the issue. For Irenaeus, that's the issue. Is it what's passed on? Yeah. You know, and as you said, he's living in the Hippolytus is living in this time. So you've got Hippolytus, Irenaeus, Polycarp, John, Jesus. There's the apostolic succession, if you will. All right, Monsignor. I know you can't go with every Gnostic that ever existed in the history of the world, but uh, you can pick out a few good ones. Well, you know, I, I thought um, four, four that we should just be aware of anyway, and we've already talked about Simon. Yep. Um, um, I, we're going to leave behind for a moment the, um, the next generation of Gnostic leadership, like Basilides or Valentinus and those folks. But I was interested in these names because they um, have connections with either apostolic history or um, or the next generation, and so they, like for instance, we meet up with um, um, in uh, Book One, uh, Chapter Twenty Six, and I didn't write down the page number on that. I'm sorry. You, you go um, ahead. I'll when I find it, I'll okay. tell everybody. Yep. Yeah. Um, but this is. The, the Nicolae, Nicolaitans are followers of Nicholas of Antioch. Um, and we meet up with Nicholas of Antioch in the, in the New Testament. Yes. He is, one of, he is one of the first seven deacons that are ordained in Acts chapter 6. And what I've never really hit, it never really hit me before, but um, St. Luke, as he's writing that, talks about how uh, Nicholas of Antioch had had been an, a new proselyte to Judea, Judaism, and now he's he now he was uh, ordained a deacon, and before very much longer, he's going to break away, and um, he's going to start a movement of Gnostics. Um, that is going to practice an extreme form of what we call antinomianism. Um, the idea of there's no law, there's no rules. You can do whatever you want um, with your life. And I thought, I thought this would be for our uh, purposes with the coming home network. It's a, it's a useful warning for us that um, sometimes people will switch from one faith to another too quickly. And there's not stability there. And I think what, you know, looking back, these early church fathers look back at 
Nicholas of Antioch and see that he was not stable. Yeah. And he just he just wanted to be a teacher, as you read in that one text. Um, well, you know, it makes um, me think about if if we don't know. So we can assume that Paul wrote his letters to Timothy after yeah. the deacons were first appointed in Acts chapters, was it seven, six or seven? Five or six, six or seven? Yeah. Six. Yeah. Okay. So in Paul's first letter to Timothy, when he's talking about the, the qualifications for a man who wants to be bishop, one of the things he says is, in, in chapter 3, verse 6, he must not be a recent convert, or he may be puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. He might have been talking about Nicholas. Yes. <laughs> did you find? Did you find that in in? Um, I didn't look it up here. One twenty six three, in Irenaeus. Yes. Yeah. Page seventy eight. Seventy eight. Okay. I just thought it would be worth the point yes. out where, where he talks about him, on page seventy eight. Yes. Um, um. Yeah. On on three. Um. So. That tradition that this is this these Nicolaitans uh, came from this Nicholas of Antioch, um, the, one of the first seven deacons. You, this is known by this is known by Irenaeus, and he goes on to point out that um, um, Saint John in Revelation is dealing with them as well. Um, uh, John praises the Church of Ephesus in Revelation two six because they hated the work of the Nicolaitans. And in Revelation 2.15, um, the Apostle John is warning the church of Pergamum um, that they're in trouble because they've tolerated the presence of these Nicolaitans in their community. Um, um, Irenaeus here talks about how they argued that, um, the, the Nicolaitans argued that adultery was a matter of indifference didn't matter. And um, we even have this absolutely incredible passage in Eusebius's church history in, in um, book 329. And Eusebius quotes uh, a text attributed to Clement of Alexandria about Nicholas, the reason why Nicholas got in trouble with the apostles is because he offered his beautiful wife to them to get more power in the community. <laughs> so basically he was uh, prostituting his wife for um, ecclesiastical power. Unbelievable, you know? And um, I was amused, uh, being a married priest, I was amused um, that there was in the Middle Ages, in the early Middle Ages, um, those that advocated for a married priesthood were sometimes called Nicolaitans too. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a delicate subject in the history of the church. But um, um, the, the, I think the point I wanted to make with one of these early ones is you have you have someone that was one of the first seven deacons who went astray. And the fact um, that Irenaeus and, points that out and says that he's the one mentioned in the Apocalypse of John means that he's a, he's alive during John 
And when John writes his first letter, he says, Children, it is the last hour, which is now. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us. They went out. Nicholas, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might be plain that they are all are not of us. That's Nicholas that you're talking about. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. Yep. Yep. And, you know, for our those that are um, tuning in, um, especially if you happen to be a seminary student, um, your New Testament teacher may go on about how all of this stuff is um, written a century later, and it's basically creating a myth around Nicholas. Um, I had to put up with this stuff all the time um, that that in Revelation, that's not what they were talking about and all that stuff. But I'm going to take my stand with Irenaeus. He's a lot closer to this situation than <laughs> some modern New Testament professor is. Yeah, yeah. The, great, the <laughs> um, great heresy of the Enlightenment is that we are today far more intelligent than these people of the first, second, and third century. Exactly, yes. Well, the next uh, the next group that um, I wanted to mention was named after this fellow named Serinthus. Hmm. Um, um, and if we, we, I mean, we'd have to jump ahead to book three, um, three, uh, chapter 11, one has something really intriguing about this. Um, book three, chapter 11, one, page 229. 229, okay. Um, and it's, it says here, um, okay, look at the bottom of the page. Um, yep. In the course of preaching this faith, John, the disciple of the Lord, desires of preaching the gospel to remove the error which Serinthus had been sowing among men. And long before him, those who were called Nicolaitans, who are an offshoot of the knowledge falsely so called. Um, so Irenaeus connects the um, purpose for John writing, at least one of the purposes for John writing the gospel with uh, addressing, addressing these things. So, Serinthus, what we know about him is that he flourished in Ephesus during the time that the Apostle John was there. And uh, his, the teachings that we can put together about him, he taught basically um, a typical Gnostic idea of the universe that God had nothing to do with the creation of, uh, of material existence. Um, and Irenaeus... Um, provides a fascinating detail about the interaction between St. John and Serinthus. And, and I thought that's I, worth... This is on page 77, I think, is where we first okay, see yeah, Serinthus. Um, we first speak to him, right. And the one that I'm going to refer to um, is over on, it's in book three on page 208. Okay. Um, and it's just worth, I just think it's worth um, 
considering this because you know we we live in a time when we're supposed to be nice to the heretics all the time <laughs> and it's kind of rather refreshing to see how the early apostles de dealt with this um look in the middle of that page on page 208 there um uh, in section four there are some who have been told by him how that john the lord's disciple in ephesus going to bathe and seeing Serinthus in the place, leapt out of the bath without using it, adding, let us fly, lest the very bath fall on us where Serinthus, the enemy of the truth is. <laughs> and Polycarp too himself, when Marcion came into his sight, said, knowest thou me? And Polycarp replied, I know the firstborn of Satan. Um, so this is the, the yeah. idea that that um, we have nothing to do with um, heresy. Um, I, I, this has always been a, a sobering thing for me, how, how we should have nothing to do with false teachers. Um, and, and let me jump into story, there just yeah, real quickly. Uh -huh. Again, yeah. Paul told Timothy in these last days, with all that craziness going on, his answer was, avoid such people. Avoid such people. Have nothing to do with false teachers, Titus 3.10. Yep. Yeah. yeah. And, and um, someone said, well, isn't and, that, that's not charitable. That's not loving your enemy. But what's recognizing, especially Irenaeus to his people, are you guys strong enough to stand up against this false wisdom? For the sake of your soul, stay away. Some people are gifted to go into the battle. Mm -hmm. And we're called to, as First Peter, always be ready to give a reason for the hope that is within you. Yeah, we're, but, you know, not every former alcoholic is strong enough to go into a bar to evangelize. You don't go there. You be careful. You avoid. And the, the early apostles recognized that what these false teachers were trying to do was get credibility. Um, so it, it would have helped Serinthus if he could have been known in Ephesus as one of the apostle John's best buddies. No, they didn't get along all right, but they at least could get together and have a drink from time to time and <laughs> talk about interesting things together. And, I mean, that would be our modern way of uh, thinking about how we should behave towards people like that. And it's just interesting to see how um, yeah. the, the early church recognized that what, what these false teachers were doing was looking for credibility. Um, so they were trying to make themselves look apostolic. And John, when he ran out of that bath, he was just practicing social distancing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh that's you know uh, those baths were big places you know as you <laughs> um so it it was quite a statement when he did that i would guess so well then the last one uh, marcus i wanted to look at was marcion of, of Pontus. um and if we went to page 78 to book 127 too, um, here we see um, 
Marcion introduced to us by, by St. Irenaeus, uh, page 78. Um, so this Marcion of Pontus um, was a follower of, he was a follower of, of Simon Magus and what we've learned, what we can learn in this passage in uh, in uh, in chapter, book one, chapter uh, uh, twenty-seven, section two. Um, Mar- Marcion of Pontus came into his place, um, uh, Simon's place, and extended his school, shamelessly blaspheming him, who is declared God by the law and the prophets that is the God of the Old Testament, affirming him to be an evildoer and fond of wars and inconstant also in his judgment and contrary to himself. And as for Jesus, that he came from that father who is above the God who made the world into Judea in the time of Pontius Pilate, the governor. Um, And his purpose was to overturn uh, to do away with the prophets and the law and all the works uh, of the God that made the world. And moreover, mutilating the gospel according to St. Luke and taking away all that is written of our Lord's birth and much also from the doctrine of our Lord's discourses, wherein it is most plainly written how our Lord confessed the maker of the world to be his father. He persuaded his disciples that he himself was more trustworthy than the apostles who delivered the gospel. And up on the, on the next page, he did the same with the epistles of the apostle Paul. They were too mutilated by him, taking out whatever is plainly spoken by the apostle of the God who made the world. So Marcion's main points then are, he denies the, um, the goodness of the Old Testament and Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, is an evil being. And it is the purpose of Jesus to come down and destroy him and his power. And um, and in doing so, Marcion creates his own canon of scripture, um, mutilates Luke and Paul. Um, he removes everything else in the Old Testament. John is gone. Mark is gone. Matthew is gone, hmm. um, and uh, and any effort, any references and allusions to the Old Testament are cut out. So he had basically his own version of the Bible, and um, most scholars feel that this was the impetus that led the church to to be more out front in defining what actually constitutes canonical scripture. So in a way, um, Marcion is sort of a, a blessing in disguise in that he, he got the church to be absolutely clear about what constitutes scripture. And you would think that the problem of Marcion would therefore have been taken care of when the church established the canon of scripture and defined it at least three times at three different councils, one in Rome, one at Hippo, uh, one at Carthage in the end of the fourth century, and you can look up in Den- a book called Densingers and see the exact list. And so you would think it's defined. 
and no questions. But all you got to do is look at church history and see that, number one, this struggle between the way God is described in the Old Testament and compared to how God is described by our Lord Jesus in the New Testament is a battle, often. How do you understand? Yeah. You know, that becomes an issue all along. And also the issue of, well, what if if my theology doesn't square with what is said in one of the books of the Bible? What do I do with that book? So we have Martin Luther, who on the one hand is is going to emphasize his particular theology of faith alone and in many ways justified because at the time so many Catholics were caught up in works alone. We know that. It wasn't the official teaching of the church, but it's the way people were living on the local level. You know, people think, oh, if I buy an indulgence or if I go on a trip, that'll save me. Well, so Luther was reacting to that, but the problem was he ended up with a theology that didn't square with the book of James. So so Luther says, I don't like that book. And we know that at that time period, a, a, a section of the Old Testament was extracted. Mm-hmm. We don't need the book of wisdom, the book of Sirach. We don't need uh, the Maccabees. So those were pulled out. But there is, it still goes on today. I remember once on the internet, I was somebody, a, a non-Catholic, was ripping my conversion story, and, and and so we got in a debate, and I happened to be quoting the Book of Hebrews, and this fundamentalist said, "I don't have to listen to that because the Book of Hebrews was written to Jews. I don't have to listen to the Book of Hebrews." So there's still people today. Thomas Jefferson. Absolutely. Thomas Jefferson didn't like all the New Testament. So he went through and cut out scriptures that talked about the miracles that Jesus did and all those and had his own little condensed version of the New Testament for himself. This didn't go away with Marcion. It did not. And of course, you know, one of the ironies of um, of sort of 20th century historical scholarship was there was um, a real effort to bring Marcion back, and how ironic that it was to be found amongst German scholars um, <laughs> that were too too comfortable with the Third Reich. Um, it just, it fit the narrative, the Nazi narrative of the Jews are evil. Oh. And and that was that was what Marcion is all about. He, Irenaeus says um, uh, in uh, that next section, in, in section three, he gives us a little bit of an insight into some of the specifics that Marcion taught. Um, salvation is only for the soul, not the body, and so therefore we can um, eliminate all those um, Old Testament rules that deal with ritual and such. And, and he said Christ's descent into hell um, saved the sodomites, it saved the Egyptians, it saved Cain, but no one who was faithfully associated with the Israelites was saved by Christ's descent into hell. Um, You find that on page 79. So um, 
There is another real whack job there. Marcion is the father of those that put their own opinions above Revelation and then judge Revelation by their own opinions. And it happens all the time. It's all around us. You see it on TV. You see it on the Internet. You see it everywhere. And yeah. which, which, again, is why at the end of Book 1, Irenaeus is saying, this is the reason I'm telling you this, folks, so you can know the truth and hold to the truth. And then from there we go into Book 2. Father, Monsignor. One, one last thing on, yes. on Marcion. If, if people want to go a little bit deeper into Marcion, the, the real acknowledged expert in the early church on Marcion is Tertullian. Hmm. So he's going to be writing just a few years now later um, in his prescriptio or his prescription against the heretics. And he develops... Um, he basically is developing uh, the themes that he found in Irenaeus about um, about the nature of Christian tradition, a Catholic tradition, um, and how you only you you find true Catholic tradition in its Catholicity, not in these little groups of adults split up all over the place, and um, and that because they all are related to the apostles. Um, and and then he and he uses also the the regular fide the 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 rule of faith um, that Irenaeus uses um, in terms of uh, writing against the Gnostics and particularly particularly against Marcion. So if anyone wants to go a little bit deeper, um, Tertullian is is the real expert on this subject. And you can go to New Advent on the internet. Right. To their website, and you'll see up in the right-hand corner, it'll say the Fathers. And you click on that, you scroll down to Tertullian, and that book is there Yeah, if you want the, to read it. In English, the prescription against the heretics, or it might say prescriptio um, All right. in the Latin form. But yeah. All right, Monsignor, can we close with a benediction? Yes, indeed. And with um, uh, rejoicing in the presence of all the saints, and we especially invoke St. Irenaeus today to help us. May the Lord bless us and keep us. May his, he make his face to shine upon us and give us his peace, both now and always. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Monsignor, and I uh, hope you will join us on the next episode of Deep in History, in which we begin our study of book two of this wonderful composition by Irenaeus against heresies. God bless you. See you next time. Bye-bye.